As I came to, I realized I was lying on my back in my shower with my legs splayed up against the shower wall. I was fully dressed and covered in liquid. An empty rocks glass was broken on the tile floor beside me. Beer and scotch. Lots of scotch. Slowly the events of the last few hours were coming back to me. I had gotten drunk. After three months of complete and hard-fought sobriety, I had gone on a drinking binge and ended up blacking out at the bottom of my shower with no memory of how I got there. I peeled off my soaked clothing and got dressed, crawling into bed more depressed than ever. Every time I thought I had conquered my addiction, I ended up right back where I started. Maybe a drunk is all I'll ever be. Jordan Northrup, The War Inside. Pondering the simple question, who are you to Christ and who are you in Christ? That's powerful. So powerful that it began to change me from the inside out once I came to know how God actually sees me. I came to understand that Christ is the true source of my identity and my self-worth. Christ is the one who defines who I am, not the world, not my sin, and not my past. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. This season will take a detailed look at the lives of five men who exemplify some of the crucial virtues of life, and from these examples, you'll be inspired to cultivate a life of virtue of your own. Welcome to Episode 3, The Initiative of Major Jordan Northrup hosted by Scott Einig, featuring personal testimony from Jordan himself, author of the book, The War Inside, Finding Victory Over Alcohol. This episode's virtue is initiative. Initiative is defined by taking ownership of oneself and seeking a path of discipline rather than a path of idleness. Initiative understands our vices and the things that hold us back but refuses to make excuses or accept defeat. Most of all, initiative does not ask to be noticed by others or ask to be rewarded for its service. Rather, the act of fulfilling the need is the greatest reward. One such example is Major Jordan Northrup. He would experience multiple opportunities to take initiative in his 14-year battle with alcoholism, which would often end in failure, but would ultimately end in victory. Jordan Northrup was born in September of 1979 in the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio. His father worked as an electrical engineer, and his mother was a stay-at-home mom for him and his two younger brothers. He and his family attended church regularly, took vacations, and engaged in outdoor activities with fellow church members. Northrup had a speech impediment that required speech therapy in these early years, but despite this, the early years were wonderful and filled with good memories. Then at age six, his parents filed for divorce. He and his brothers experienced the usual feelings of pain, guilt, and confusion. His parents had always been a part of his life, and now one of them would be missing. Though he saw his father regularly, it just wasn't the same. His mother remarried, and he and his brothers moved to Maine with her and their stepdad. 
Four years later, they would move back to Ohio to be near Jordan's grandparents. After attending a Christian school for the rest of adolescence, high school was drawing near. Jordan would see firsthand how different this world was. In a world where the cool kids, the nerds, the jocks, and the loners were clearly divided, Jordan would struggle to fit in. I went to a Christian school, I've been in church my entire life, so as far as, you know, the typical high school experience for kids, you know, start to drink at an early age, that, that just wasn't me and my family. You know, I grew up in high school, I wasn't popular, I was a big nerd, you know, never had a girlfriend, didn't play sports, was awkward, I stuttered, all those things. So, you know, I was just kind of more or less invisible. Though he made acquaintances in those four years, they were nonetheless difficult to bear. Self-conscious about his stutter, it was always hard to engage verbally with people, or to the girls on whom he had crushes. Despite his best efforts, he did not have one date in all four years of high school. His friends were merely hang-out-at-school friends, and did not invite him to after-school get-togethers. All of this rejection led Jordan to believe that he was a social outcast who just wasn't deserving of love and acceptance. It was in the midst of this depressing state that Jordan was first exposed to alcohol. You know, I'd known about about alcohol for, for a long time. You know, you had the sip of your parents, you know, beer or wine at like a meal or something. But, you know, it just wasn't something that I grew up, that I grew up, up with in my family. Um, but I want to say the first time I got drunk was when I was 19. So I'd finished high school and a buddy of mine who I was very good friends with had gotten a hold of some uh, high proof rum. And I made it a point to go over to his house one night and we went shot for shot until that pint of rum was gone. And I never had, you know, more than a sip at that time. And I, I, I knew I was, after now I know that I was drunk, but at the time I didn't know what I was experiencing. And the next day I hated the hangover, I felt awful. And I was like, I cannot believe people actually drink this stuff on a regular kind of, kind of a basis, it was that bad. I kind of thought that, you know, getting drunk with my friend would be something edgy, something people wouldn't expect. And so that it would give me a certain kind of, um, almost like a notoriety. So that, that's why I, I made the choice to do it. After high school, Jordan entered community college. He had his sights set on a career as a lawyer and mostly abstained from drinking. He taught piano lessons, got in shape at the gym, studied, and stayed away from the college party scene. After finishing freshman year, Jordan applied for a liberal arts college in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and was accepted in 2000. He soon discovered that there was a vast party circuit that existed off the campus grounds. Word would spread among the students about where the party was and who was attending. Jordan, faced with the old high school desires for acceptance, turned 21 upon beginning sophomore year. He was now not only able to buy his own alcohol, but was able to purchase it for minors. What had once been something he hardly did at all had now become a regular pattern. It really became a problem for me when I got to college. So uh, I was a freshman, I was a sophomore in college in 2000, and I was in a school in Michigan. And um, it was a Christian college, and I lived on campus in the dorms with my brother, who was a, who was a student there as well. And, you know, it was a Christian school, so there's obviously no drinking on campus, but there was definitely a strong undercurrent. There was this... Um, um, 
kind of like this movement under you know behind the scenes of drinking and it wasn't on campus it was always off campus and so i turned 21 that sophomore year and so i kind of you know wanting to fit in and be accepted having come off of my high school experience of being invisible and being a nobody i needed to find a way to kind of get into the sort of the, the fabric of society on campus and so i, I decided that i'd be willing to uh, compromise my principles and such. And so I decided to buy alcohol for minors. So, because I could, because I was 21. So I kind of became known as the guy who buys. And so, and so, you know, a Friday would come around and kids would approach me with, you know, a 20 or, or 10 or like a 40 bucks. And they, I'd, I'd go get them, you know, their case of beer, their bottle of like liquor, and it was all great. And so that kind of kicked off um, kind of a series of years where I just got more and more sucked into the drinking kind of a lifestyle. And eventually I moved off campus and, you know, into an apartment. So that kind of opportunity, that venue wasn't there. Um, but, so my drinking kind of transitioned more instead of buying for the younger kids, was going out to the clubs, the bars, the happy hours, that kind of thing. And in my college town, there was a vibrant party scene. So pretty much every night of the week, if you wanted to go find a bar with like, you know, some kind of a special occasion that night, then it was there. And so um, that pattern just kind of continued all the way through my graduation and on into the Marine Corps. Jordan was now in a position where he not only felt accepted, but needed. It was even something that gave him some extra money. Students would go to him with cash for whatever kind of alcohol they wanted for whatever party was happening, and he would keep the change. Doing this for tens of kids over a weekend made trips to the liquor store a profitable endeavor. Despite the possible academic, legal, and personal ramifications of buying for minors, Jordan was never caught. At the end of his sophomore year and the beginning of his junior year, he no longer bought for minors, preferring to go to clubs and bars for companionship. He would also drink with his brother and roommate at their apartment. To see how much drinking they had done in a school year, they saved all the liquor bottles and beer caps. There were 70 bottles and hundreds of caps by the year's end. He even began driving drunk, sometimes not having any idea how he made it home. But the drunkenness, recklessness, and law-breaking wasn't as important as being seen as cool and edgy. By the end of college, Jordan realized that not only were his grades barely getting him by, but he had no prospects for a job or career lined up. Little did Jordan know that a most unlikely prospect would soon present itself. in the midst of all of my, you know, drinking on campus and partying ways. And, you know, when you're doing all of that, you're not really studying in class. And so, so, you know, my grades were, they were, they were bad. I didn't have any internships lined up. No one was going to give me a scholarship to grad school. You know, I was working like a, a retail job and I, I wasn't going anywhere fast. And so, then 9-11 hit and I was like, huh, well, maybe, maybe I had some friends that were patriotic and they joined the military. I was like, well, I'm patriotic. Maybe, maybe the military could be a way out of the mess that I, that I made for myself. So I signed up, I uh, went down to the recruiter's office and I talked to all the branches, but I was like, I want those dress blues, man. And so, so I chose the Marine Corps and I signed up and I enlisted. At first, the military seemed like nonsense. Jordan was 65 pounds overweight, was plagued by his stutter, and lacked all self-confidence and discipline. But his friends reasoned that those were the very reasons why he needed to go. 
Upon going to the recruiting office and seeing the Marine's uniform, he knew it was the right thing to pursue. In August 2003, after going to the processing center and swearing allegiance to the United States with the other recruits, Jordan was off to basic. The next three months would be a brutal period of testing and endurance. Drill instructors yelled and screamed constantly. The recruits became immersed in the world of the Marines until it was all they knew. Everything from eating and bathing was timed. Punishments for the slightest offenses were commonplace. Physical training became more extreme as the three phases of basic dragged on. There was hardly any downtime or time to oneself. This time was all about destroying the individual for the sake of the group. But all the torment of the past three months paled in comparison to the day Jordan became a United States Marine. It was awful. It was the, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But, you know, three months like later, when I walk across that parade deck as a new Marine, I mean, you feel, you feel invincible, just invincible. And then from there, uh, I finished up my college degree. I had one, I had one more semester to go, finished the degree, went to officer's candidate school in 2005, and from there, I went into active duty. Though he was now a Marine, Jordan found it difficult to apply the same level of discipline to his personal life. The drinking continued, though he did not drive drunk due to the harsh penalties of receiving a DUI as a Marine. The desire to finish school and not to destroy his chances of advancing in the Marines kept him from truly going overboard. The next phase of his Marine's career began in January 2005, when he started Officer Candidate School in Quantico, Virginia. Unlike BASIC, this phase of Marine development was to evaluate and train the candidates to see who was truly qualified for leadership roles. It was also different in that a candidate could drop out if he was not Marine material. Jordan witnessed this time and again as the brutal training went on for 10 weeks. By the end, one in three had left. But Jordan was determined not to be one of them. He stuck with it and made it to graduation. He was now officially a Marine officer. It was the proudest moment of his life. Though he now had achieved something few Americans ever do, Jordan still felt an emptiness. Now that he was equal to his fellow officers, there appeared to be few opportunities to stand out from the crowd. The old high school feelings crept their way back in, Though the need for acceptance had unexpectedly reared its head, Jordan did not feel an urge to engage with crowds as he once did. During this time, he began a habit of drinking alone. Drinking had once been a way to gain social standing. Now it was a way to unwind, recharge, and withdraw. October 2005 saw Jordan starting his next phase of development, the Logistics Officer Course. Here he would learn about everything he would be doing in active duty, including how to move supplies by land and sea, what was needed and how much, and what to do in many different scenarios. Jordan graduated as a logistics officer in the United States Marine Corps three months later. His first assignment was to train a large 75-man platoon in tactical convoy operations, whom he would then lead into battle in Iraq. The opportunity was a perfect one for an ambitious Marine officer looking to add experience to his resume. While training for the upcoming deployment, he had time to drink and party with his old basic friends. 
Though he was in a place where strip clubs and drug dealers dwell in abundance, he managed to avoid the worst of these activities. He finally left for Iraq in June 2006. During this seven-month period, he and his platoon would have close calls. In one incident, an Iraqi insurgent fired a rocket-propelled grenade and exploded a fuel truck. Another time, one of the trucks drove over an IED, a disguised bomb in the ground. Miraculously, neither incident saw casualties or serious injury. In the course of this first deployment, Jordan and his platoon logged 235 combat missions. Jordan commanded 115 of these missions personally. Though other platoons suffered casualties, all of the 75 soldiers under Jordan's command survived. I went to um, Iraq in 2006. Um, we, I fought through Fallujah and Ramadi, and I was with the infantry at the time, so we're out there patrolling convoys, fighting with the, the enemy. I got blown up once, and firefights, and all kinds of uh, scary stuff, but I was, I was, I was uh, protected by God, and I, I came through it all. Then again, I went to uh, Afghanistan twice, once in 2008, and then again for a year in 2010 and 11. And so I transitioned to the reserves uh, in 2013. I'm still a reservist today. Um, so I have a few more years until I retire. It's, it's, been a, it's been a phenomenal ride. Wouldn't change it for the world. And I'm honored to serve. In the time leading up to his first deployment in Afghanistan in 2008, Jordan's usual habit of solitary drinking was back in full swing. Before Iraq, he had met a woman at a local church he attended, and after a few dates it seemed as if there was potential after he returned. Alas, the woman severed contact, and, when Jordan returned from Iraq, he saw the same woman at the same church with a husband and baby on the way. This crushing blow caused Jordan to abandon church altogether and continue a life of partying and solitary drinking. More and more, he found his purpose in the Marines and not in God. His time in Afghanistan proved to be very good for his career as a military officer. He rapidly advanced through the ranks to become a captain and was able to return after eight months of hard labor. Numerous Marine Corps parties and opportunities for drinking ensued around the holidays. The military does not encourage you to drink and abuse and abuse alcohol or any kind of a substance. They just don't. There's many resources along the way to help those who are in that plight. Um, but I would say that there is a, a culture underneath the surface of heavy drinking. Um, a lot of traditions and, and you know certain things that we do in the military. You know, you got toasts and there's certain ceremonies and things that involve that sort of thing, and it's definitely there. And then the philosophy of you work hard and you play hard. So Monday through Friday, you're out in the field, you're training, you're leading your Marines, you're doing what you got to do, and it takes a lot from you to to accomplish that. And so you know on the weekend that's your time. And so you know the military encourages you to rest and relax as you see fit. Unfortunately. Um, because uh, there's that um, sense of machismo or you have to be tough and a man drinks beer and that sort of thing. And this is what we do as men. Hoorah! You know, there's there's all too often you see uh, folks in the military going down that heavy drinking path. Um, uh, 
Additionally, for me, coming off of a combat deployment, you know, you're in there for, I was over there in Iraq for seven months and with all the combat experiences that I had, your adrenaline's always running high. And when you come home, it's just all over with. There's no more, there's no more road, road, roadside bombs. There's no snipers on the rooftop. There's no firefights. And you're just back home in everyday life. And that's what it is and so you, you you kind of find ways to medicate to kind of keep that high going if that makes sense and so for me coming back from a deployment i didn't drink because of you know any ptsd or, or horror that i saw it was i needed to keep the adrenaline up um and so certainly for other folks you know you have a lot of younger men women who come from all backgrounds walks of life and they come on to in the military and they go onto a base and they live in the barracks they're in close proximity to each other very much like a college dorm it's almost identical to that you know you just have it's just it's going to happen and and unfortunately it's it's a, it's a problem in our services so that quickly came into this just this pattern of you know you know professionally lead troops monday through friday and then friday night through sunday evening was just time to cut loose and more and more as the years went by i quit going out with my friends quit you know going to the bars and i would just stock up on the weekends with beer and liquor whatever it was and i would just pound them and so you know by the time i was in my 30s i mean i was i was in real trouble i was in real trouble by this time jordan's habit of solitary drinking over the weekends had become the new normal he finally began to consider the possibility that he had a serious drinking problem. He tried many tactics for slowing down his consumption. Hiding his car keys, pouring beer down the drain, committing not to drink past a certain time. Though these had temporary success, they all failed long term. Jordan had been drinking steadily for nine years, and had reached the point that the thought of giving up alcohol was horrifying. So when I was in the midst of my drinking, I thought that alcohol was my best friend, right? I mean, it never lied to me, never cheated you know, on me. It was always there to hang out. I never quit at closing time. It was always there in the fridge when you wanted to spend a little time. It always made me feel good about myself. But so as much as, as awesome as that was, my own mind, the price was very high. It cost me, it cost me personal relationships. It cost me my self-respect. My health over the years just took, you know, a deep dive. In some cases, my, even my work performance was suffering. Jordan had been attending a church men's group and was able to summon the courage to confess his drinking. After receiving prayer, he managed to put the bottle away for a month. As short as this time was, it felt like a lifetime. He had recently been assigned to a new duty in the D.C. area and moved there a sober man ready to start something new. Things were looking bright for Jordan. He began a series of college courses aimed at a master's degree, remained sober a majority of the time, and performed well in his new job. Best of all, he began a relationship with a lovely woman named Amy. After years of feeling like he didn't measure up romantically, he had found a good Christian woman who not only wanted to be with him, but helped inspire him to keep the drinking under control. As bright as things were looking in his life, things gradually began to take a dark turn. He had not confessed to Amy how bad his drinking could get, and began to find ways to drink without her knowledge. Worst of all, he began crafting lies as to why he couldn't be with her on any given night so he could drink. He also had to be careful about answering the phone after a night of drinking so as not to sound drunk when he spoke. 
This went on for a while until things came to a head on New Year's Eve 2009. Amy discovered Jordan's drinking habit for what it was, and she became upset to the point of breaking off the relationship. When Jordan finally found her, he began to weep. The tall, well-built Marine Corps officer had become a puddle of misery. Amy forgave Jordan, and Jordan promised not to drink again. They slowly began to rebuild their relationship. Amy encouraged Jordan to attend a men's group at their church, and Jordan was initially reluctant. While he had grown up in a Christian home and had been surrounded by godly influences, the realities of the Christian walk had not sunk in. He did not have the joy that God's children are supposed to have, and, above all else, Jordan was resentful toward God. After having prayed over and over again for deliverance, he still found himself wallowing in sin. Jordan still found it difficult to give his entire life to God. Alcohol was just too important. Amy suggested that the two of them separate for a month in an effort to sort things out and see if the relationship could continue. Instead of using that month to better his ways, Jordan went right back to drinking. His church attendance fell off, and there was no restraint left. He secretly hoped that things with Amy could end so he could return to alcohol. When they spoke again, Jordan lied and said he had not been drinking, but Amy could hear the alcohol in his voice, and, after a tearful confession of hurt, she ended the relationship. In June of 2010, Jordan received a year-long deployment in Kabul, Afghanistan. He was overjoyed at the chance. It would be good for his career and could possibly lead to a promotion to the rank of major. Best of all, it was an alcohol-free environment. Jordan discovered that if he was in a place where alcohol was not readily available, he didn't desire to drink. Only when it was nearby did the urges hit him. He settled into his new roles and became close friends with the chaplain at the base. He helped Jordan realize that God had not abandoned him and created him to be a loser. He had been pursuing Jordan all along, yet Jordan had not listened and done his part. During that year, he became closer to God than ever before, and eventually requested to be baptized by his friend. Though the past year had been full of grace and peace, it was sadly not to last. Jordan had received negative marks regarding fitness requirements and was now uncertain whether he would advance in rank. It felt like a betrayal. Jordan had given everything to the Marine Corps, and this felt like a slap in the face. Upon returning home, the old routine of drinking on weekends returned. During the remainder of 2011, things went from bad to worse. He calculated that in the course of 14 years of drinking, he had spent nearly $100,000 on alcohol. His drinking began to seriously affect his health. The Marine Corps officer who hardly broke a sweat during a five-mile run now could not ascend a flight of stairs without gasping. His stutter had returned with a vengeance. He hardly looked people in the face and routinely turned down invitations with friends. The excessive drinking caused memory loss that would persist to the present day. As low as things had gotten for Jordan, they were soon to get worse. But through it all, God had not given up on him. I'd been back from my last uh, Marine Corps deployment for a couple of months. Had been, you know, a lot of drinking in, in like the, those months. Um, I'd made the decision to resign my commission and go into the reserves. So one aspect of 
my military career was kind of coming toward towards an end. And I realized that after 10 years of wearing the uniform, I didn't know who I was personally, professionally, and spiritually. And I was filling up all that void by drinking. And so January of 2012, my dad came to visit me in Virginia for a week. And after he left, um, he left on a Sunday afternoon. I took him to the airport and then I went right to the grocery store and I stopped up, man. I stopped up. I got beer, I got wine, I got cigarettes, I got uh, champagne, I got snack foods. And I went back to my apartment and man, I dove right in. And so I want to say in three days, and I, I was on leave for like a couple of days. So I had three days. So if you figure Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I had two bottles of wine, a bottle of champagne, and about 50 beers four packs of cigarettes, two pizzas, all in just a two and a half day clip. And so that night, um, I mean, I thought I thought I was done for. I mean, my heart was just kind of fluttering. It was sputtering. I, I like had the shakes. I couldn't even breathe in with that with like a, a pain or a hiccup. And I just remember I just crashed into bed about 8 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Hadn't slept at all straight. I was awake the entire time from like blackout wake up drink and black out again and i knew i had to go to work on wednesday wednesday morning and i just remember praying like you know god if you're there please don't let me die tonight and so i fell asleep it was miserable i was restless didn't get a good night's sleep i woke up the next morning around six o'clock and i had to get ready for work now you know i showered up and i was trying to shave my hand was going like this i couldn't even use a razor so i I like, had to use an electric one. I got my uniform and I went down to uh, to my job, to my office. I sat there and uh, you know, my boss who came around, he came around to the corner. He's not a talkative guy. He came around. He's like, hey, man, are you all right? And I was just like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I couldn't just tell him that I'd almost drank myself to death the night before. And so that was on a Wednesday. And all that rest of that week, I just knew that Friday was coming. I knew it was coming and I was going to be outside myself walking right into the liquor store to just do a repeat of what I've been doing for 14 years. And so I really prayed that night when I got home on Wednesday night, went into my, my, into, my into the library of my house, got down on the floor and I just started praying, confessing to God, everything I could think of, started crying. I mean, I had a puddle on my carpet right there in front of me. I had the Bible out right there, I had the tissues right there. And I mean, we were talking, me and God for about a good hour. And uh, after we were done, you know, I was praying for repentance and forgiveness and for strength and for stamina. And I got up that night after that experience and started reading in the Bible. And I, you know, I grew up up with the Bible. That was my nothing new to me. I've been in church since my first day old. So I knew all the stories, knew all the verses, went to Awana, vacation Bible school, could walk you all through the New Testament and back. But it wasn't ever really real for me, if that makes sense. And so I was starting to read through the prison epistles of Paul. I mean, I was just drinking it in. And it was like actually speaking to me in a way that I'd never really experienced before. So I was like, this is really good to go. So I got in bed that night and um, and by Friday, um, I had enough uh, emotional courage and strength to drive right past a liquor store on my way off base and I went right home. And um, that kicked off a period of about three months of sobriety. For the first time in forever, the word of God became alive and real to Jordan. He began putting particularly meaningful verses on flashcards to always have on hand whenever temptation hit. 
one of these passages would go on to become his life-defining verse. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 29. Jordan realized that the Christian walk does not automatically get rid of sin and life instantly becomes easier. Rather, sin still exists and it can only be defeated by relying on Christ. Jordan did not drink that night. By the time he went to bed, he knew he was forgiven and spiritually and mentally at rest. During the three months of sobriety, he met and eventually became engaged to a woman online named Jolene. They had many good dates and the relationship was progressing well. When he proposed, she said yes, and the wedding arrangements quickly progressed. In the course of their dating and engagement, she would have drinks with meals or at various functions, and Jordan would find himself having a few as well. The weekend binges were over, but alcohol was always present. Though this constant presence should have been a red flag, he felt he had it under control. But gradually, his resolve began to crumble. The daily Bible reading and prayer ceased, and his spiritual disciplines began to weaken. He'd be sober for a month, then get drunk on a weekend. On one of these weekends, Jolene called and he answered with a drunken reply. She became very upset and refused to see him for a couple days. Eventually, they met and discussed their future. Gradually, the pain and hurt softened and their engagement was not under threat. Due to work, Jolene was going to be going overseas for some time, and Jordan was settling into his new reserves job and keeping busy making final wedding plans. Jordan found that without her presence, it became all the easier to drink again on weekends. The two of them married in December in Washington, D.C. The first few months were a happy time as they adjusted to married life and Jordan managed to stay mostly sober. But eventually, things began to weaken. What started out as a few drinks after work became many drinks. The drunken nights became more and more numerous. After five months, it began to bother his wife so much that he sensed she began to look at him less as a husband and more as a drunk she was married to. Her own vices and bad behaviors began to increase. As Jordan's drinking worsened, she spent more time with friends, some of them other men. After one year of marriage, the two of them had dinner, and she asked for a divorce. Jordan wasn't surprised, but he had begun to experience true regret and guilt for his part in their relational troubles. He had gone back to his counselor and had slowly been getting back to the ways of God. This progress would culminate in one of his counseling sessions. It took place on April 19, 2014, a day that Jordan would never forget. My counselor's name was Don. So let me tell you about Don. He's a retired guy from the Navy. And he, the way he counsels isn't the typical, like, um, strategies of how to do things. Um, he, he doesn't give you self-help tips, you know, don't, you know, do, do this, don't do that. He counseled me from, to understand the matters of the heart. And he asked me, I'll never forget one day, I'm sitting there on his couch in his office. And he looks right at me and he goes, who are you? And I just sat back like I've been punched. I'd never been asked that question in my life. He goes, who are you? He goes, he goes, are you a Marine? Are you a drunk? Are you a husband? Are you a loser? And the answer is, I was all those things. 
And then he asked me a question that just, you know, rocked me to my core. He goes, but I'm going to ask you, who are you in Christ and who are you to Christ? And then he pulled out um, this is like a little sheet and he said, and he said, and he read off some lists, some, um, some uh, declarations of who I was, Jordan was in Christ. And he said, Jordan, in Christ, you are his masterpiece. You are his friend. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are free. I mean, it's like 20 some things. And I'm just sitting back, you know, bawling and crying. And, and uh, it even gets to me now a little bit. It's like, I'm telling this like story because it's still powerful all, all these years like later. And I was like, man, that's what I want. Because for, you know, 14 years of drinking in my entire life, I'm 30, 34 at this point, 35, and like all that time, I had no answers to those questions. And so once that moment hit, I was like, me and God, we're going to do this. And so um, I claim um, April 19th, 2014 is my first day of sobriety. Jordan's newfound resolve was soon tested. Despite his best efforts, his marriage to Jolene ended. The temptation to drink came back amid the sorrow and intense feelings of loss. Alcohol, his old friend, lover, and companion, began to call out, promising the usual comfort and escape from the trials of life. But Jordan had changed. He knew the call for what it was, and he knew that drinking would not give him the freedom, rest, and peace he so dearly wanted. The following weeks proved to be among the most difficult of his life. The wars he had fought overseas in combat were nothing compared to the war for sobriety. But Jordan had made his choice. He was going to take initiative and pursue God instead of the bottle. He chose to cast off the label of hopeless drunk and chose to call himself what Christ said he was. Most importantly, he was determined to not become complacent in his walk with God. He knew he had to choose God every day, not just once or twice a week. Jordan made it past his previous sobriety milestone of three months. He would eventually remarry and have a son, with whom he now lives in Northern Virginia. He continues to proudly serve in the Marine Corps and is actively involved in his church's men's ministries, where he shares the lessons of his journey of overcoming the war inside. He remains sober to this day. That journey of self-identity and discovery it helps me to form a new identity in Jesus Christ and use his power to overcome my sinful desires. And that, and that power was stronger than any support group, any 12 step, any tool. Uh, not that those things are bad. There's a place for all of that. But uh, having that identity in Jesus Christ is the real source of power and strength to help, to help me to get sober for real. You want good godly men in your life, just for just just to be in like your life, but especially if they know, you know, isolation is a tool of like of like the devil. And if he if he knows that you're susceptible like me to alcohol, he's going to hammer in that insecurity and that lack of identity and that guilt and that pain and all those things. As he because he doesn't want you sober, he wants you wasted because then you're not in the fight. To me through my counseling and my experiences, I came to realize that walking, living by faith, trusting in Jesus, I would trust him just enough to give me enough emotional endurance to get through one more day without getting wasted. And over time, that muscle got stronger, that faith muscle got stronger and stronger and 
stronger. And so if you think about it, you know, uh, today is March the 21st. Well, in less than a month, it's going to be April the 19th, 2021. That's going to be seven years of the day where I haven't had a sip. So, you know, I didn't have some fancy, you know, lightning bolt from heaven that shocked me and made me a new person. You know, I'm just an average Joe Blow, no different than you or anybody else in your audience. Um, but I'm just a guy who trusts that Jesus will give me the endurance and the grace to stay away from the bottle and to live by faith each and every day for him. And that right there is what keeps me sober. Managing your, your symptoms of addiction to gain sobriety is not the answer. What I would say is that you want victory from your addiction so that you then have the freedom to live the life that God has intended to live. Fight the urge to be passive. So in today's like culture and society, oftentimes you're seeing the male role being 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 diminished or you're ceding your responsibilities, authorities to to society, school, academia, public, whatever you want to call it. I would really encourage men to take the responsibility, lead lead your families and be the father that God has called you to be. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. A very special thank you to Major Jordan Northrup. You can read his full story in his book, The War Inside, Finding Victory Over Alcohol. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Man on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore man and give us a follow. Tune in next time for episode 4, where we explore the boldness of Richard Wormbrand. <laughs>